Welcome everyone to the Cosmopolicast, and I'm Mo, your host. If you're listening in for the first time, welcome aboard. Now we've got a full house today. Uh, we've got Claire and Rachel, John and Owen, Vivek, Thomas, and also Akshaya. Okay, Akshaya is studying at Siam Po. Is that right, Akshaya? Yeah. I'm studying at Sion School Paris. Okay, and I know that you're doing studies into, let's say, democracy and all of that. Can you explain that just a little bit so that everybody gets to know you? Sure. I'm doing international security. Uh, most of my work has really revolved around um, the Indian democracy, and the evolution of democracy within South Asia. I've also looked at institutions, um, specifically national institutions, how that relates to uh, women's rights. Um, and I'm really excited to be here. Okay, we're excited great. to have Thank you too, but yeah. let's not do this. This is boring. Let's let's not your doctoral dissertation. <laughs> let's get into the right question. Let's just have some fun. Okay. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you, Akshaya. I'm not saying you're boring. I'm just saying let's just have some fun. <laughs> exactly. Okay, let's jump in then. Actually, we have the pleasure today to have the former Prime Minister of Estonia with us. Thomas, how are you? President. President. Did I ever mess Doing up? I'm doing rather well, given the circumstances of COVID and you're in lockdown. Okay, actually, I wanted to start with you with the first question. We're going to jump into what is happening at the Suez Canal. How can we get that boat out of there? Does anybody have any ideas? Thomas, you want to start us off? Well, the only thing I could think of was a palindrome I came up with yesterday, which is Zeus, S-O-S, Suez which basically really is what you have to do is you have to sort of go in reverse. That's just too cryptic. Why can't we just blow it up? Best thing to do would be actually, I assume being a complete, as the uh, Germans would say, fuck idiot, which means a person who only knows about things, is to unload all the containers. And then the, the ship, I presume, would become more buoyant. And then you could sort of move the ship and then reload it. Now, I have no idea. I don't know. I know nothing about uh, cargo. That's why I said, you know, sort of the thing is you need to reverse the action. And that's why you need a palindromic solution. You know nothing about cargo. Uh, other See, than Monique, cargo cults. We all have our little deficits in knowledge. There we go. Yes, we were talking <laughs> about that before. Our limitations. Our limitations. All right. So seriously, why can't we blow it up? Anyone know? Well, I think the environmental damage would not be so nice, and probably you'd clog up the Suez Canal. So I don't think that's probably the best solution. I really do think you just have to offload and then reload. Is there any way to raise the water level? Well, I think Mother Nature is going to do that. Apparently, Monday or Sunday, there's going to be a high tide of some sort. It'll raise the water about half a meter. So if they can't get it off then, I don't know what they're going to do. Yeah. Oh, and this is the sort of thing you'd be good at getting that thing yeah. out of there. Let's get Owen in here. Oh, yeah. All right. Well, I'm, I'm not an engineer. I'm a geologist. So, but th there's not really a lot of good options. Like with unloading, you'd have to bring a crane in. I mean, they, they simply don't have the infrastructure set up there. Uh, and there's 20,000 or so containers. So it's not going to be a quick process to unload. Didn't they also say, Owen, that that was going to be dangerous as well to try to unload those? Those containers? I'm I'm not sure. Um, I know they've talked about taking the ballast water out of it, but then it would be top heavy and could potentially you know, tip over, and that wouldn't be great either. Why wouldn't that be great? <laughs> I mean, don't we want it to just get out of wherever it is? If you if you hitched up enough tractors or whatever it is they <laughs> use over there, maybe you could just haul it right out. Okay, so serious question, sort of semi-serious. Sure. You could kind of describe the 20th century history of American foreign policy as think of America as this big machine dedicated to protecting the strategic lines of communication. And the Suez Canal, how many times has even a threat to block the Suez Canal been interpreted as a casus belli? How come we're not there doing something about this? This is what we're good at. This is what we live to do. This is, this is our mission in life is to protect shipping lanes. A man, a plan, a canal, <laughs> Panama. There's a reason everyone knows that joke. Well, that's why I made up another palindrome, Zeus, S-O-S, Suez. You wanted more, you wanted more praise for that one, mm. I can tell. Uh, yes. Okay, a round of applause. Well, I mean, the French and the, uh, and the Brits invaded in 1956. You'd think that they would care a little bit more, but 
I have no clue. I mean, where is Macron? Where are the Germans? Germany actually is, is going to be very badly affected by this for all that people think it's, you know, a humorous picture on Instagram or whatever. But a lot of the Chinese trade from Germany goes through this canal. So it's going to have at least severe short-term knock-on effects. Yeah, it's a complete crisis. all the supply chains. Yeah. And Germany's also not actively doing anything as far as I can tell. I wouldn't expect Germany to do anything, frankly. But this is the sort of thing that, the, that America exists to do. This is our raison d'etre to keep this global shipping going. going. So maybe we are doing something? I don't know. Claire, actually, America hasn't been able to do much about the Suez Canal ever. Right. It was <laughs> shut in 1956 to early 1957 with the whole British-French thing happening there and Nasser nationalizing it. And then it was shut again for eight years between 1967 at 1975. Yeah, and it was a constant subject of negotiation. Yeah, but it was shut. That's true. And it was shut because there were not just wrecks from war there, but the, that place had been, the Suez Canal had mines in it. So it had to be, you had to get rid of the mines before the ships could get back in. But as soon as they um, made the deal in the Sinai, they opened it back up again, right? It took two years to open it. Really? Yeah. Well, maybe then it's not so it's not so bad. And in fact, uh, global warming has come to our assistance that the alternative is the northern route across the pole. And who cares? No, it, it's really costly. The northern route? No, the northern. You don't have to go around the Cape of Good Hope. You can just go up along the north. I'm having trouble visualizing this. Why is this not uh, uh, less, not as costly <laughs> for China to Northern Europe, that might make sense. But say from India, India into the Mediterranean, you definitely want the Suez. Oh, Monique, you're the best. Yes, I'm getting a map. The Arctic route that's been opened up because of climate change. So the Northern route, you're right. It's great for China and for Russia. You turn Harbin into a major shipping center. Oh, wow. We're yeah. all looking at a map. So can somebody describe for people who are actually listening that cannot see this? Russia is big. It's much more on the Russian side of the, the northern route. We can't describe this. That's why we're looking at a map. That's well, basically, if you look at, think of a globe and look at the northern coast of Russia, which used to be frozen in the winter, but now is open. And I mean, this is why, for example, the People's Republic of China is a member of the Arctic Council. Because yeah. this is of such fundamental importance for shipping to Europe. I hadn't really seen what a difference it makes to the shipping times. It's it's mostly su summer shipping, though. Like, I think it's still pretty closed, and you can see the February ice extent goes all the way up to the Yeah, but we're, I mean, it's, our, it's, it's April. I mean, so you have like six months to deal with the Suez Canal. Screw it. I'm so glad we solved that problem. <laughs> okay, so do I send these guys, whoever's doing, you know, getting the ship out, or just can I just send them this map? <laughs> I'm sure the Chinese have already figured that one out. So I'm not going to be helping much. So the whole Suez Canal crisis is just totally bogus. Well, for India, it's a disaster. What about all the boats that are stuck in the middle between the, the one that's stuck and right. the last? Like, they can't reverse, you got to back them out, right? How can they? <laughs> well, they can reverse, right? Most of them. I don't think they can turn around. Yeah, but can they reverse? turn around because the, the, the length of most of the ships is greater than the width of the canal. Yeah, yeah. I get that part. But can they reverse? I guess. Does anyone know? I once, I once um, caught a ride in a Roro ship from Istanbul to, where were we going? To Marseille, I think. It's amazing. It used to, be, it used to be possible. I don't know if it's still possible. You can just go and say, hey, you want to take me on as, as supercargo? And that was really interesting. You are supercargo. Yeah. Uh, these are not Roro ships. Well, no, they're, they're a little lot bigger. I'm saying they're also not Roro. I mean, they're, they're not, we can go, they, can, you can't, they don't reverse direction. And especially the ones carrying live animals. That's, that's awful. That's a terrible situation. How much of the world's trade actually passes through the Suez Canal? About, what, 10%? Yeah, 10 is what I read. Uh, it's 12% of global trade. 12%. Okay. Right. Because we were talking also, Vivek, about the Malacca, no, the Malacca Straits and mm -hmm. that. Now, the next problem is, from a security point of view, uh, that 
if you're going to go around Africa and the Cape of Good Hope, you now, then all of this shipping will have to deal with the Somalian coast pirates. I, that's exactly what I thought. And everyone made fun of me on Twitter. I they're having an or they're going to have an orgy. Yeah, exactly. Right. Okay, Isn't my that question. where America's role would come in, though, with the pirates? Well, yeah, we've never been very useful. Not, against they have to get there, and they have to go. They too have to go all around the. Uh, yeah. Uh, the pirates the have, have have the first mover advantage there. I mean, they just just me looking at that and thinking banquet. Right. Well, I was thinking even more than that. But I mean, basically, if you have the Mediter the U.S. Fleet Seventh Fleet is it in the Mediterranean? Yeah, they too will have to go all around Africa to get there to protect the fleet. So then you have a lot of e smaller EU ships that are already there. I think, but in any case, there are there are Germans and Dutch and other people out there in the uh, uh, off the coast of Somalia. But well, imagine a traffic jam in Los Angeles. And then these people would decide that, oh, this is a perfect time to go start robbing cars. Yeah, exactly. And no police are going to come because they're like, they can't get to you. And so you just start robbing cars. And instead, you just start, you know, there are no police that are going to come and save your ship. So how do they protect themselves? They, do they have private security forces on board? They, some of them do. I mean, I guess you can fly out private security forces onto these ships and let them rappel down or something. I don't know. But the point is they weren't planning on any of this. Now they're stuck. Now they can no. go around. So how would you fight off Somali pirates if you were on a ship off the Horn of Africa? I mean, clearly with a sword, right? <laughs> well, there are all kinds of international regulations on use of weapons. I mean, you're not going to start, you know, shooting them oh, at 50 the insurance caliber. insurance liability. I mean, think about that. It's not in the contract. And, you know, for the Navy, it's just like OSHA violations, right? But honestly, I mean, what, what good is it to be the world's mightiest seafaring power and, the, and, and, and to have the most expensive Navy history has ever seen if we can't deal with this situation as Americans? I ask the other Americans here, not the non-Americans. I'm from New Jersey. And this, this is the moment when all that tax money is supposed to come into good use. Well, we'll see. I mean, you do have uh, you do have a, a you have a US naval presence in the Indian Ocean and you have Diego Garcia where all the renditions went through. Maybe they could start rendition. They're doing their own renditions now of Somali pirates. Well, anyway, my point is that there is a US presence there. You'd think they can mobilize it. And it doesn't take that long, actually, to get any fleet, any place, you know, six or seven days. So it's, it may be messy for the next week. And this has got to be our special technical expertise. If it isn't, then I, I just feel like I've wasted my money all these years. I and mean, we've been preparing well, we didn't for- waste them all these years because all kinds of things were prevented. On the other hand, now we're gonna see whether, you know, I mean, it, it was worthwhile investing in all these things. If you're going to be cynical, just to be cynical, U.S.-China trade isn't really affected by this, right? That presumably mostly goes across the Pacific. So really what's getting impacted is Europe-China trade. So it's having a dire effect on China. And in a point of time where maybe you want European-Chinese ties to be disrupted if you're the U.S., maybe this isn't such a bad thing. You mean as a, as a form of artificial decoupling or yes, exactly. not very artificial form of literal decoupling. Right. Well, moving sort of on, underlining that China and Europe don't really have as, you know, there's, there's risks to that relationship. Moving on, the utter collapse of EU Chinese relations in the past week should be a, a natural segue. I mean, that's kind of like progressive FM rock in the 19, uh, late <laughs> 60s, I mean. That we are now, I mean, the, what we have seen in the past week is because of EU censure of Chinese human rights violations, Chinese wolf warrior diplomacy has managed to really like, I don't know what they're shooting themselves. I, I don't know what they're doing. I don't know if any, everyone's been following this, but just mm -hmm. insulting the French. French. Uh, oh, they've been all over. Every member state ambassador to the political committee of the EU, which are the people where, who make all the decisions in the absence of not very smart foreign ministers, because all the smart people go into are the nation member state ambassadors to the EU. They've all been declared persona non grata. Ten think tanks in Europe, including some of the best, have been 
declared which is obviously a badge of esteem so right now i mean this is kind of this thing where you have now declared all of these important crucial people and institutions in the eu under sanction and your trade is collapsing and there is no f way that the uh, that the china eu trade agreement will in any way stand a chance of being passed and ratified in the european parliament why did they even embarrass themselves by trying to get this deal through who's they well merkel well, the germans maybe merkel because they will do anything to have trade yeah but this was the german auto it's industry just... dictates foreign policy to a large extent for germany really is that really it it's just extent. economic and that's 30 it. years we the 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 german germans have caved into russia because of wandel durch handel change through trade it's like yeah when you're an export nation you're always very vulnerable yeah that's certainly true and no one wants to see a vulnerable germany because we all know how bad that can go but no no they're too pacifist compared to what the next chancellor is going to be a green that's what it looks like Yeah, said you did very badly in the last local no, election. Yeah. It's been days also not. Franco-centric. Even you, Claire, think that France is the center of Europe when in fact it's just part of the periphery. I don't know that it I mean, how are we defining this? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just thinking of how, how Macron has this grand vision of how how to br- proceed when in fact he then has grand visions that ignore like an air, a population of Europe larger than France and then thinks he can get away with it which one are you thinking he's ignoring oh i mean when he comes out with this plan that oh we will bring russia in and pull it away from china oh, yeah. is- that that's um really errant bullshit isn't it I, i none of us understand and none of us no, no one who's who's watching him thoughtfully understands why why he's, he's doing this what what exactly. he's doing and why and what constituency he's flattering or whether he's lying to himself or he's he's otherwise oh i'm i'm pretty sour on macron right now because of the absolute well, catastrophe of the pandemic by ignoring 75 million east europeans and not talking to them I right mean, people are everything up against russia and he goes and does this and we're all saying wait a minute you know this is but no one serious could believe his claim that Russia can be seduced into being a European power at this point. So what does he think he's doing? I guess he wants to be the uh, roi philosophe, the visionary. Well, it's not really very visionary, is it? It's an old idea and it's been tried and it's failed. For about 200 years. I think the main problem is that since the last time the Russians were in Paris was 1814, with its their sole gift to France to France of the word bistro he couldn't be that romantic and naive could he he has, he has a very competent intelligence staff he is um, he is he has experts telling him no this isn't going to work he doesn't listen to them because if you think you're smarter than your staff after all you're president they're not so you're smarter and therefore your grand vision is more important i doesn't i don't understand it either it's, it's really weird but then a lot of France is much more alien to me than I realized it was. The whole the whole pandemic thing with the anti-vaxxers, I realized I'm living in a country that I don't understand as well as I thought I do. There's also a lot of bizarrely Huntingtonian thinking in France. I've heard so many from so many different people from left and right this idea that, well, our ultimate foe is Islamic fundamentalism. And after all, Russia is a Christian nation. Where do they get this crap? That's this pure Russian propaganda. No, but I've heard this from French foreign policy people. Wow. French foreign, yeah. French foreign policy p- people at what level? Thinkers, people who advise Macron. And they've never heard of Tatars or the don't realize that the fastest growing population inside Russia is actually the Muslim population. And Russia is always never offends them. No, I mean Russia is <laughs> always had a large Muslim population. This is well, the more they conquer, the more they get. Exactly. I mean, this is just like Russia crazy stuff that that I know Russia puts into the information environment, but why do sophisticated people buy it? He's trying to inspire a vision. I mean, he's he's right to have put his finger on a certain mood saying 
we can't rely on the Americans forever. We've got to we've got to look forward, not backward. The Americans are obviously down for the count or off to the Pacific, and they're not going to care about Europe anymore. I mean that that that's something that I think everyone does understand. But the idea of uh, I would basically say, I mean, first of all, a I would work to counteract that. I mean, yes, it is clear that that uh, the Pacific is the, going to be the future theater, and that in fact China represents a great is a greater adversary to the United States. On the other hand, to equate Russia with the an economy the size of what Italy, Italy, Italy's got a great economy. I mean, it's on right, G seven, isn't it? I mean. The, no, but it's the same, but it's the population twice the size of Italy or three times the size of Italy with the same yeah, economy. It's one, 140 million or something yep. like that. And Italy isn't go running around invading people. <laughs> no, we're just getting no. bought up. But it actually, it's actually no stupider than the strategic fantasy I keep hearing from Americans, which is that we're going to team up with Russia to take on China. Yeah, well, that's that's equally dumb. But basically, the smart people in the United States don't say that stuff. Whereas the they smart do. I've heard it really smart people saying things like that you know saying we had to ally with stalin to take on the nazis well, that's yeah i mean historic well oh, god in fact you did have to ally with Stalin. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well they see it in the same way but these are basically clowns bought i mean american think tanks bought up with coke family money i mean it's actually happened with the atlantic council two weeks ago where in fact these two people yeah. who we should uh, ease up on human rights and realize that Russia is our enemy, our ally against China. I saw that in the Washington yeah. Post. It was sort of a, a, it was definitely hinting at that. It didn't out, outright say it, but it said well, the United States can't imagine that it can be the global superpower anymore. We have to pick and choose, and China is the problem, and everyone else we should just forget about human rights. Well, the big thing was in an Atlantic an Atlantic Council piece, uh, which was you know I mean just that the Atlantic Council. I mean, you can think of like, okay, you can imagine Cato saying this among U.S. think tanks, but the Atlantic Council, which is like the paragon of transatlanticism and liberal democratic values and defense of human rights. And then they have this suddenly this new section there built up and paid for by the Koch people. Well, are they right? I mean, does the U.S. just not have enough money to take on anything but China right now? No, 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 no. I mean, uh, instead, I mean, there's actually a brilliant paper, but I don't think it's published. But I mean, you should talk to him. Is a guy named Kieran Martin, who used to be at GCHQ, talking about how the, the stupidity of, the, of America and Europe in not forming a, an economic tech alliance. Because basically, says like Europe is just concerned about you know sort of getting GAFA, Google, Apple, Facebook, yep. and Amazon, and but not realizing that you know that's not the enemy, and at the same time the Americans don't pay attention to Europe, which is far larger and wealthier market than even the United States. Well, you know, I agree with you. You know that I've been saying this for for years. You just have to get democratic nations to work together as a block and you save democracy. And if you don't do that, you all hang separately. Well, but yeah, why... This is my whole thesis about how with the, which my uh, thesis, of the, Thomas. Of the thesis. article that I have not <laughs> written for you, which is the, the elimination of geographically based security thinking, because basically to, the year 2000 represented uh, was the time when kinetic warfare next to kinetic warfare, which has been the history of warfare since the initial scenes of 2001, A Space Odyssey, where the monkey learns to, or the pre-human learns to kill another species, his own species member with a bomb. It's a great a scene, isn't it? What? It's a great scene, isn't it? <laughs> well, then the next scene after that, he then kills somebody. <laughs> but now, since 2000, and operationally since 2007, the basis of kinetic warfare, the Newtonian second law that force equals mass times acceleration no longer holds because when it comes to digital warfare, there is no mass, there is no acceleration because there is no distance or there is no time. And so now we have to think, but as soon as you're liberated from the kinetic idea, then you no longer need a North Atlantic Treaty Organization because you need it, but you need something else. 
I mean, it's it, it's no longer just North Atlantic. It, I mean, why don't we have a security organization that includes South Korea, Japan, and Australia? Yeah, why don't we? And why haven't you written this article for us? It's a, it's really kind of important. I think it's really interesting that Tomas said geographic-based security thinking, because at least according to me, the pandemic has really shown how the, the pre the importance of geographic-based security thinking. And I was thinking in line with what we have been talking about until now, you know, what do you think the US can do in a post-pandemic political order where this vaccine nationalism that has been propagated by China, I think that's really going to shift how countries think about these two paths. You know, countries are going to remember that China was there for them, Russia was there for them, and the US clearly was not. Question. Europe was there for them. Europe exported more uh, more vaccines into for COVAX than uh, they had for themselves. And in fact, actually, the U.S. has actually given a fair bit to COVAX as well. But my point about the decrease in the importance of geography had to do with the fact you, you can do damage to countries without being next to them, without sending missiles. You can just shut them down if you want at a distance. And so therefore... I don't think that takes away. I mean, I think she's right, actually, that, that geography is coming back in a big way. And you're right that you can shut countries down from a distance. So we're really in trouble. In general, we're in trouble. In general, we are in trouble. Yeah. Does anyone disagree? No, I actually had a question maybe for all of you, for Claire, too. Don't we have a paradox that the democratic countries, the problem we have with democracies is that the voters in democracies will tend to vote their national interests. That seems to be what's happening. So how do we get democratic voters in these countries to see a grand strategy or to, to buy into this whole picture? You mean game theoretically? How do we get this? <laughs> how do we get this? Yeah, because you see we like can't. even in Austria, right? We see that the prime minister, I mean, sorry, the Bundeskanzler is trying to score points right now by blaming the EU for all these problems and the voters tend to go along with that. It's very easy to blame your problems on the outside if you're in a democracy. Well, Austria is the big free rider. It's always someone else's fault. What's interesting, though, is that in America, we're seeing the total nationalization of local politics. Local politics are disappearing into national politics, and we're seeing the opposite in Europe. I guess the state building process in America is where I'd look if I wanted to look for solutions in Europe. It's not an especially ob original observation, but you can't have a currency union without a fiscal union and all that. And I don't know if it's possible in Europe to, to pull something together that acts as, as a it single entity. Time. I mean, you know, the U.S., it took 100 and 150 years for the United States to get from the Articles of Confederation to the New Deal. So it's going to take a while for Europe. We're moving much more quickly. It does feel like we've the pandemic, we've slipped into, not even slipped, just fell head over feet into a new historic era. Now, we'll see if it's an era or not. But history came back. I think people knew that before the pandemic. But well, history was, our, was coming back beforehand, but yeah. now it feels like standing at a void and no one has any idea what's coming next. I really like seeing Biden speak in that stolid, old-fashioned American way as if everything's going to be okay and we're just the same country as we always were. And that was just an unfortunate little episode. <laughs> Sense of urgency it did in the period 19, 1940 to 1950. I mean, in fact, the sense of urgency in the second half of the 1940s when it realized that, oh, shit, the uh, Soviet Union is really bad and they're not our friends, led to like massive action from the, I mean, if, that period of 45 to 50 included basically the establishment of all fundamental institutions, beginning with the UN, followed by the, then you had the Berlin Airlift, and then you had, you had the Bretton Woods Institution, the World Bank, the IMF, NATO, when you think about how much was actually done in a five-year period, it's I know. I, I was I was reading uh, America in the World by the by uh, Zolik, who I, Robert Zolik, who I interviewed the other day, and Zelik. Do you pronounce it Zelik? Zelik. Yes. And I was reading the book with avid interest. You know, turning the pages and thinking, yeah, yeah, this is the country I I come from. This is the one I remember. And I was, got to the end, waiting for him to comment on recent events, which he really doesn't do very much. He obviously wants to eat lunch in this town again, whatever town it is, and thinking, is he talking about a country that still exists? I just don't know if that America is still there. I don't know if we have the will, the the competence, the organizational talent. I think, I think the U.S. does. It's just that it's also, the electoral system is so screwed. 
and you basically had 33% of the people represented by more than 50% of the legislature. I mean, the Senate is, is, is an utter disaster and, uh, and the uh, gerrymandering is equally a disaster. Oh, and let me ask about Canada. <laughs> it's not getting no. vaccines. What, what are they saying in Canada about not getting uh, vaccines? More, more promises that we'll get them soon, basically. And that's kind of the way it's been going from the beginning, I guess. You know, they're coming by June and it'll be open for, you know, anyone who wants one, which I don't think it will. Well, I can um, tell you, my mom was speaking with the prime minister's office and that's all they're really working on, trying to get those vaccines. But oh, are, is sure there anyone getting upset over this? Like, are they saying, there, oh, there vaccine are. nationalism, boo. Not as upset as I, it's kind of like what Claire said with friends, like not as upset as I would have expected, to be honest. Like people are actually, you know, they gripe about it on social media. The more it's, I th uh, thought about it, about the more it. I think John is right. People are enjoying the pandemic. Or there's enough people yeah, who are. Yeah, at least, there are enough yeah. people enjoying the pandemic that there's no public upswell of rage. And, you know, I guess it's it's it makes sense like we're all in a in a position that we can work from home you know we're we're yeah. all still you know doing something you know bringing in some money right i mean we're, we're all fairly comfortable you know it's it's not such a bad situation i don't us. consider the trade off acceptable whatsoever i would be joining the first the first <laughs> protest where i could dump manure in the senate if i saw one but i do think that ordinary people are not just not that upset about it and that suggests that something is pleasing about these circumstances to them you can't look at this and say this isn't an important data point. What do you think? Right, or it tells you something about modern life that people are just so stressed out by the day to day rat race. A little pause, maybe something that some people can Well, I have to admit, of. you know, exactly. I have to admit it's nice working from home. I don't spend a lot of money. I'm comfortable. I'm in my pajamas right now. Yeah, the fashion I industry is going to have a, a very hard time coming out of this whole <laughs> crisis, I think. Maybe it just depends how much you worry about people who are in the at-risk group, including yourself. Maybe, although for, you know, speaking for myself, and I, I am in a high-risk high group due to some health issues, I mean, I'm glad in a sense that I'm at home and not in the office, although, you know, I wish I'd been vaccinated already, right? But I mean, yeah. you know, given that we haven't been, I'd much rather be working from home than going into the office. Um Back to protesting. I wonder if Akshaya has some thoughts, because traditionally who drives protests? It's usually students. It's interesting that students in particular don't seem to be particularly heated up by any of this. I mean, I don't know if students are necessarily not unhappy. I think at this point, everyone's just really tired. And, you know, I'm speaking about the people that I've met. We know that we are at lower risk. So people are just going on with their lives. I think that's just I don't think people are necessarily happy at home because a lot of us feel like our youth has been robbed. You know, <laughs> yeah, I bet. Where do you live? At City University, so it's a student housing. And what are they doing about that to reduce the possibility of infection? Are you just going on as usual? No. So with the lockdown, it's pretty strict here. We're not allowed to um, go into each other's houses and all. But and I mean, a lot of this was like you wore masks and stuff. You tried to be socially distant, but I mean, we're not happy just staying at home. Yeah. Yep. This was a question that I asked a politician, actually, yesterday. I had an interview with one. And what do we think are going to be the effects on younger people of this pandemic? Anybody have an idea? That's a good question. Well, what I see having a 13-year-old and hearing from other parents is that the addiction to, to video games and, and phones has gone off the charts even greater yeah. than what it was two years ago. I think we talked about this last time, right? I think reading is taking a sharp hit. A lot of I, I think we've entered a post-literate world. I really do think we have. I, mean, I, I really notice it. I don't think it's post-literate. I think it's just image-based rather than word-based, which is which is a kind of literacy. It's just very different. I notice now, it used to be that if I wanted to figure out, to know the answer to a question, I would Google something and the answer would come up in an article. Now it comes up in a YouTube video, which infuriates me because I don't yeah, have the patience for it. Yeah, I hate that. I do that. not have the patience yeah. for human speech anymore. But I think that's a brain development thing that younger people aren't getting. They're very happy to listen to each other babble on forever. And, and this, I mean, the consequences of this are impossible for me to imagine. We're, we're really in some sort of post-postmodern era, and I don't know what it means. Mm -hmm. Depends how long it lasts. 
I mean, I think it's got to be five years for it to really have an effect. Otherwise, it's kind of like, okay, well, it was this like weird period that lasted a year and a half. Yeah, but a year and a half is so long when you're 13. Yes. Yeah, it really is, actually. And it was a trend that was there before the whole pandemic happened. The pandemic has just accelerated the whole thing. So I don't see it reversing itself easily. I found it kind of poignant when Akshaya said, I feel like we feel like our youth has been stolen from us. And that's a sort of, I mean, that's just, it's just sad. It has been. Well, I'm also thinking of the economic you know, downturn in a lot of countries and how it's the younger generations who in this year and a half has taken a complete hit. They've lost their jobs. And what will happen to that later? Like how long is it going to take economies to recover? And for these kids to get back into the workforce, for those who do want to get back into the workforce and not, let's say, take on an academic route or other kind of training. That's what I'm thinking of mostly. Uh, although, right, young kids, maybe as Thomas was saying, you know, after a year and a half, uh, you know, the whole thing passes, you know, we can try to recuperate somehow. I'm thinking of a whole generation of kids who have missed out on a year and a half two years, whatever it is, maybe it's going to be even more. And what's going to happen to them? Kids who between 1939, depending where they live, 1945 or 1960 or 1989, lived in completely different circumstances and from a completely different trajectory that you would have imagined. But minimally, the kids in Europe, be it France or Estonia, between 1939 and 1945, lived in conditions far worse than what this is. Yeah. Of course they lived in conditions that were materially far worse and far more dangerous. I'm just wondering what this does to the human soul and the human brain and what kind of people we're shaping for the future. Are they going to be capable of talking to each other in person, of, of understanding complex written information? Are they all going to be incapable of making eye contact with each other? What's going to happen when they come out from the cave? Because <laughs> this exacerbates problems we already had that that generation didn't have so much. I, I'm sure right. they'll be fine in, the, in, in some sense and the human race will continue. We'll get attacked by the Chinese and none of us will all be, we go back, have to go back to books because I'm reading only during the day or by candlelight. You think? Uh -huh. <laughs> well, that's um, uplifting. I don't know if this is discussed in America, but in Austria, it's been a big topic. The arts in particular are taking a huge whack from this, particularly young people. Oh, terrible. Because you can come out of terrible. school, you can work in, there's still factory jobs, there's still engineering jobs. But if you're in a theater course and you graduate, you have nothing to do. You've lost Absolutely. two years. There's Perf nowhere to perform. Performing artists are just screwed. Yeah, yeah, my husband has had to give up so many ensembles because it's not safe to sing in a large group inside. And, and what does this right. do to... If it goes on for years and years, of course, that destroys a whole cultural tradition. But I don't think it's going to go on for years and years. I don't think. It is It is just spooky. It's really spooky. We just don't Like know. opera. Opera will take a hit because both the audience for opera is probably getting wiped out by the pandemic on the one hand. <laughs> and then the young singers who might go into the opera won't do it. Right. Choral music is... Oh. What is that? Choral. Choral music. Big up here in Estonia. Do these traditions die or do they just go into hibernation? No, I don't know. Look, I mean, my husband and I are, are Argentinian tango dancers, and that's been completely closed off. They've tried to do, for example, lessons via Zoom or lessons, but it, it's just not the same. And then, of course, it's not the lesson. It's actually going to the milonga, dancing. Yeah, of course. And mm -hmm. so all the physical contact, gone. So they've had to shut down. And they have been shut down now for the past year. They they tried again to revive and try to get it, but you know, I mean that that's the essence of dancing tangos. I mean, you got to be close. Yeah. Right. Yep. You can get away with it maybe with salsa or something, because Martial you arts. actually need okay to touch. Yeah, exactly. All of those where you physically have to touch someone. So Morris dancing do. will become the new trend after the pandemic. Everyone remember like you know big concerts with thronged with people like the Rolling Stones or something where you're all packed together and <laughs> it's unimaginable now. Well, it is unimaginable now. The too. mosh pit. Mosh pit. <laughs> I mean, how do no. you explain that to someone the age of your son, Rachel? <laughs> oh, I don't think you can. The, the child is afraid to go to a playground. 
you know, if there's two other kids on the, on the playground, he's nervous and he doesn't. So his birthday came and we were going to have a a few, just a few kids over. And he told me to severely limit the guest list. And, And I'm a, I'm in a higher risk group. And so I'm very, very cautious, but he wanted to cut it down even from what I had. Mom, I want to be sure you don't get coronavirus. Wow. Um, he's scared. It's, it's uh, good. He should be pass. scared. I mean, it's rational. Yeah. So it will pass. It will pass. Well, everything does pass, but what, I mean, worlds get transformed by these kinds of events. Uh, Thomas doesn't agree. Thomas? I just think that everyone's going to, everyone's going to party like it's 1999 soon as this, as soon as they're, I mean, it'll happen slowly because you'll have, uh, I mean, as more and more people come online, as it were, I mean, with their second dose, but everyone, as soon as they get their second dose, starts screaming and from joy about now how they're going to have this, uh, you know, basically orgy of activities. Well, that's what happened in the 20s. Yeah, I think very similar to that. We'll get our vaccine passports. Thomas, are they working on one in Estonia? Oh, we have one. Of course you do. The I problem the is, rather, is who, who's able to accept it? I mean, because we have, you know, paper ones, are, but this one's blockchain based. <laughs> Estonians are cool. It's got to be said. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I was going to say, even for Europe, uh, just to get us out of this thing, should we be keeping our vaccines or not? Yes, we should, because otherwise we're going to give rise to monster mutants. That's not a favor to the world. What if you keep them and too many countries don't use them and they just sit? Would it be better? Oh, everyone's to using them? them. There are no unused vaccines. The problem is a shortage. Okay. Yeah, Europe right now is the humanitarian crisis is here and in Brazil. Mm-hmm. And that's where the vaccines need to go. I see. What about going forward, though? You know, when oh, it looks like they, France has already been vaccinated. Who no, wants? it hasn't. <laughs> no, when you get there, though, we're going to get there in like 2028 at this rate. Yeah, okay. The question is really if we get there at this point. Yeah, if we uh, get there. I mean, it, it's an unbelievable situation for a country that produced so much. I, I went over this in the last podcast. We don't need to bore everyone with me droning on about how incredible it is that France has screwed this up so much. But I think the idea of giving vaccines to COVAX is very good in principle, but you have to chase the epidemic where it's happening and i don't know if we have really good data about where it's happening but by the way has anyone been following what's going on in chile because i think the no. chinese vaccine may have failed there just chile was it. doing well but i haven't checked in in at least a week i have a friend who's a government <laughs> official there and so i can't read his stuff because i don't read spanish very well but my impression was it was doing well i i'm not sure though it's well i don't the think- countries where the russian vaccine is gone i don't think this is the fault of the russian vaccine it's the countries where they sent it to, but Hungary and Serbia are both very proud of getting the Russian vaccine, sending it around. Neither are doing very well at the moment. They're both seeing cases spike in Hungary in particular has been a disaster. Really? Well, how much of the population is vaccinated? It's about 23%, but it's not all with Sputnik either. So it's not Sputnik's fault, but I think um, there's no clear case where the Russians can point to a country and say, look, we saved the country. You know, Israel yeah. is, looks great, and that's all with yeah. Pfizer. Israel does look great. They really pulled this off spectacularly. I, I can't believe that Netanyahu has to go through a fifth election after that victory. I mean, he really saved the country with this. I've, I, I had many reservations about Netanyahu, but I'm total team Netanyahu after seeing that. Well, the U.S. has screwed up royally. The European Union screwed up royally. How did it screw up so badly? Do you have any insight into that? I don't know. I've only read that what happened was they put their trade negotiators on on uh, negotiating the purchase, which meant that you had a completely different set of skills, which was to reduce tariffs. The idea was yeah. to increase the amount of stuff you buy. That's what uh, I've read too, but it just seems insane to me that no one recognizes this as an emergency. And I, it seems to me part of the fundamental it's a design problem with the EU, that they just didn't have the authority to treat it like an emergency because they're not really, it's not really a state. Exactly. Right. The trading organization. That's what. Just- that's what my politician said yesterday. That's the, it, it, you know when it started. That's not what right. It was all about where when the EU started. We all know this at different times, right? The time of peace, where liberal democracy seemed to be the answer for everything. That's not the world we're living in now, where you have to respond very quickly 
to emergencies and to problems. And it looks like the good old nation state does better. Well, look, I'm thinking of Italy and where I'm living now. And I can tell you that had the EU not stepped in to do this, I don't know whether we would have got vaccines. I really don't. Because we just have, you know, our, our government, you know, Italy's really beautiful, blah, blah, blah. But it's not exactly the most organized of places. I don't know whether they would have had, you know, the, how can I put it, the institutional know-how of how to do this. I really don't. I, I put it into question. So in a certain way, I'm glad the EU actually did step in to do this. Did the institutional know-how atrophy because of the EU? They failed to utilize the incredible market advantage they had of having 500, speaking for 550 million. And instead they went in, for the wrong, in the wrong direction, looking on costs, let's get the lowest cost. And then in fact, by doing that, and by having a bad agreement, uh, sloppily done agreement, they ended up with far fewer than they should have had. And they had a huge advantage. They have 500 million people. They should have been able to say, we've got the money, we've got the clout, our citizens come first, Europeans deserve to be healthier than everyone else in the world because we're better. <laughs> it's not necessarily moral, but they should have been able to do it. Yeah. And they were looking for low, low cost. I mean, Netanyahu paid, was willing to pay more or like, I don't know, a fair bit more per dose than the EU. Which is a bargain when you consider. Right, absolutely. <laughs> but they didn't think in those terms. But no. why they didn't is a mystery to me. I mean, how? I think it's because it was in the summertime, though, right? They did. They made these plans last summer when they all thought, "Look, we're doing much better than the U.S. We're just going to no. sort of skate through this." I think that influenced their thinking. They didn't listen to the epidemiologists. No uh, you know, all the scientists them. are telling me there won't be a vaccine for years. <laughs> they didn't have the vision to see that this was going to happen soon. Yeah. I mean, we we have to hand it to the Trump administration. They didn't screw that up. Well, someone at least recognized it was a real crisis. Someone, right? And it was Slui. I think that's how you pronounce his name. Manuel Slui. Does anyone know how to how to pronounce his name? I mean, the U.S. government is a formidable machine in action. It, it doesn't even require an executive who's in any way compass mentis to know that when you have a problem like this, you throw money at it. Akshay, are you um, up to date with what's going on in India right now? Oh, with the vaccine situation? And just the pandemic situation generally. <laughs> no, no, the India case is quite interesting because I think just yesterday, um, India submitted a, a message to the to the Secretary General, I think, saying that India has now exported more vaccines um, than we have deployed within the country. And that also came along with India saying that now we are going to sort of put a clamp on the amount that we're going to be exporting because we need to vaccinate our frontline workers. Sorry for interrupting. How come India hasn't claimed this diplomatically as much as it could? I mean, it could be crowing as much as China is about how much it's exporting. That, that's a good question. And I don't know. You know, I think, and this could just be me, but there's something weird about what's going on in India because, you know, we are such a large country and we, we had a very strict lockdown when we started off, but we haven't had a lockdown in a long time, you know, unlike what we're saying in many parts of Europe. But India's been doing surprisingly well, you know, for a country that's not really... Yeah, and down. Vivek explained that as willingness to wear masks. Do you agree? Ah, uh, no, not really, no. No? The, the, the local explanation, I don't know how far this holds, is just that we have been exposed to a far greater variety of germs before. So It's but, perfectly but yeah. plausible. It's perfectly plausible that all this stuff about mm -hmm. how much more disciplined and cohesive Asian society is is nonsense, and that, in fact, it's just a matter of previous exposure to similar... Well, but when they, when they brought us out of the lockdown in Texas and took away the mask mandate entirely, we did not see a spike. It's gone down. But that was only, and, what, two weeks ago? A uh, little bit more. Yeah, you wouldn't see it yet. Maybe. The concept of exponential growth is really troubling people, I can tell. I mean, yeah. still, there's a lot of stuff that we just don't understand about this. Do you see the... I, I tweeted about this, Redfield's comment about lab leaks, the immediate media in unison no it wasn't a lab leak as if anyone knows as if anyone knows right well we can't know how would you know for sure how do you prove or disprove that one you, you couldn't because something that was that came from a bat in wuhan would look the same genetically whether or not it right. passed through a lab right and I, I i don't understand this desire among scientists just clamp down on discussion like that 
Well, I think the question, you know, nobody's asking as well is why is Africa doing so well? Like it's just bad reporting. Like they've only had a hundred thousand deaths or so. Well, my brother sure time. came down with it in Dakar. So that made me think, well, maybe it's a lot more prevalent than is being reported there. But you know, it depends yeah. vastly from country to country how well they're keeping statistics, how well they're reporting. All right, guys, I'm getting tired. Yeah. Claire, um, what's going on with the with the articles? Is there anything coming out? Oh, yeah. We've got a Shia's article coming out, and she goes back and does what Vivek told her to do. And then, of course, Tomas is going to be writing all of his interesting thoughts about the way geography has disappeared in the future of war. We're waiting, Thomas. Yes, we're waiting. We're waiting. Don't let waiting. us down. Anything from the ambassador? Which ambassador? Oh, Zolik? Zolik. Well, he promised. So we'll see. And, and John, what are you working on? I'm still supposed to be working on that piece about uh, the EU and Brexit. Yeah, where is that? To... It doesn't work right in your head. The words on no, paper are what count here. <laughs> also, I'm just wondering if I have to sort of rethink things, you know, with the whole, with the vaccine squabble, sort of incorporate you that into it now. Get yourself paralyzed trying to get it exactly right and don't do that. Just yeah. do it as best as you can right now. It's still better than what most people will do. All right, yeah. Owen, where are you on uh, refugees? I'm thinking about it right now. I, I previously written a shorter article about a, a specific family. Oh, I think I saw that one. That. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, it got published in a small, a very small local paper here, or uh, like online, right? So I'm, I'm going to try and expand on that and get a bit more perspective. But um, yeah, that's uh, just talking about refugees kind of globally a little bit and. Uh, I have what we should do. I have someone who might be useful for you to talk to if you're interested. Oh. Look up Barbara Elliott. She wrote a book about the fall of the Berwillen Wall from the point of view of the refugees who flooded over when it fell. Yeah. And their take on kind of why it had fallen. Okay, everybody. The so the problem let's... is, Claire, that we all want to write a chef-d'oeuvre like you. We can't. Yeah, just... You can't compare yourself to me. You'll only feel. You'll only feel. Well, that's the whole problem. We, we aspire <laughs> to. It's good that you have the high aspirations, but don't let that intimidate you. Well, Claire, our time is up. Oh, you're right. It is. I suppose it's time to say goodbye. That's right. Okay. So, to thank everybody, you, everyone, and we hope that you'll be tuning in for the next Cosmopolicast. Bye-bye. Bye bye. 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 Bye.